Tonight in our study of Genesis, uh, we're going to take a major shift uh, in the book. Uh, in the first 11 chapters, we studied about creation and humanity. Uh, sin was introduced, the flood was introduced, and the development of the nations was laid out in chapter uh, 9 and 10 and 11. But here tonight, we're going to be introduced to a prominent figure throughout biblical history, a man named Abraham. Now, it might be worth mentioning that Abraham, or Abram, as we'll see him tonight, his entry into Canaan likely occurred somewhere between 2100 and 1875 BC. And as I said, turning to his story presents a major shift in the book of Genesis. You see, 11 chapters have dealt with so much from creation to the establishment of the nations, but the rest of Genesis, chapter 12 through 50, is going to follow Abraham and his family. Uh, considering this, let's remember what God said to the serpent back in Genesis 3, verse 15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And immediately after God made that promise, Eve began waiting for this serpent crusher figure to come. Uh, and it will be through Abraham's line, we'll discover in the book of Genesis, that this serpent crusher or this promised one would come. All right, so let's read, picking up at the end of chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Okay, remember, if, if you can, from a few weeks earlier, when we went through the table of the nations and various genealogies, uh, there we learned that Terah is a descendant of Noah's blessed son. Remember, he cursed Ham, but he blessed one of his sons particularly, and his, that son was named Shem. Uh, Terah came from Shem, and Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, it says here in verse 27. And since Haran had a son named Lot, and he's going to become part of Abraham's story, he's also mentioned here in verse 27. So according to Joshua, uh, Terah, who's mentioned here, he was an idolater, actually, who served other gods, Joshua 24, verse 2. So this Terah, uh, he has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran, verse 28, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ixa. Now Sarai, verse 30, was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, though interpreters and scholars vary in their understanding of all the geographic locations that we just read in that little paragraph, the whole point of this paragraph is to further the story. 
Uh, and there are a few plot developments that find themselves in this passage that help set the stage for the story to come. Uh, the first plot uh, characteristic or development is that we learn that Ur of the Chaldeans in verse 28 was the birthplace of Terah's sons, including Abraham. Abraham. Uh, this is going to become an important part of the story uh, because of the Chaldean connection to Babylon, which is associated with Babel that we studied in Genesis chapter 11. There, the people of Babel formed a religious center with the aim of sticking together rather than spreading out in obedience to God's commission. Okay, this city of Babel became the great anti-city uh, in Scripture. It's anti-God. It's emblematic of man-made religion, views which believe that man can attain to the, to the divine, that man does not need God. Babel and every religion that has followed its model is anti-cross, anti-gospel, anti-grace, anti-Jesus. And Abraham was called to leave that ancient, anti-God, pagan world and society. Okay, another thing that we learn in this paragraph is found in verse 30, that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren and she had no child. Okay, this detail is going to play heavily into the story to come. Uh, God will promise Abraham descendants, uh, but his wife seems unable to have children. It's a conflict. Their faith is going to be tested. They'll fail the test of faith with terrible consequences, but God will give them grace even in spite of their failures. And eventually, Sarai, this one who is barren, she'll become Sarah, and she will have a child. Okay, another little detail in this paragraph that we just read that prepares us for the story about Abraham to come uh, is the implied struggle to obey God. And you might not pick this up on your first reading of the paragraph, but, but let me explain it to you. We learn in verse 31 that before Terah died, he took Abram and his grandson Lot and Sarai, Abram's wife, from Ur to go into the land of Canaan. But instead of going all the way to the land of Canaan, when they came to Haran, they stopped and settled there. Okay, so they were on their way to Canaan from Ur of the Chaldees, but decided to settle in Haran instead. Now, not much is mentioned about this, but later in the book of Acts, we learn from Stephen that it was a battle for obedience and allegiance to God. In other words, Abraham was called to leave Ur and go all the way to Canaan, but only went to Haran. It was halfway obedience. It wasn't until later that he fully departed from Haran and went to the place that God had for him. And this is, of course, God's pattern for us. He wants us to obey him all the way, not only to come out of some things, but to go all the way to something else. Uh, that's what we're called to, to, to leave certain things, but also to go to certain things. Or to put it this way, to stop doing everything Scripture tells us to stop doing and to start doing everything that Scripture tells us to start doing. Okay, so that's sort of the setup there at the end of chapter 11. Let's get into chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, here we see the Lord speaking to Abram. Okay, we don't know how God spoke to Abram. The text doesn't tell us. And the text also doesn't tell us why God chose this particular man. Uh, I personally think that it's unwise to use this passage as an example of divine election for salvation, partly because Abram, it seems, was saved later on by grace through faith in chapter 15. Here, he's called to merely bless the nations and given a great promise uh, from God. Uh, here, he's called to go from his country and family and father's house to the land that God would show him. But we should note the first appearance of God's promise regarding the land here in verse 1. Okay, this is going to become a major theme all throughout Genesis and all throughout this chapter. God will promise this land to Abram's seed in verse 7. Abram will build altars to the Lord in this land in verse 7 and 8. And here in verse 1, God said he would show Abram the land. So the whole narrative, in a sense, is about the land that God said he would give to Abram and his offspring. It was this land and through this land that God would reveal his glory through Israel. From this land, they were supposed to reach out to all the nations of the world. And one day in this land, the Christ Messiah would be born and would live and would die. And because of this, the land would be a source of great blessing to all nations. Okay, so God makes this promise to Abram, this call to Abram. But the promise extends into verse 2 and 3. Let's read that together as well. It says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, this is a theocentric promise. You know, it's obvious that God is the one who will fulfill this covenant with his man, Abram. Over and over again in the passage, God says, I will. Even though Abram is called to obey God, God is portrayed as the first mover. He acts, he moves, he's the initiator. Okay, you have to remember this when it comes to your own experience and your own walk with God. He is active. He initiates. He pursues. And there are a lot of things that God will do for his people. Uh, therefore, it makes sense to obey and, and follow him. Uh, it, it's kind of like this. Picture a flowing river. Abram was going to, through his obedience to God, jump into the flowing river that is God. God is moving in a certain direction. And we also should see God moving on our behalf, and through obedience, we jump into his stream of activity. But it starts with God. He's the initiator. He's the prime mover. And if Abraham left Ur, God said that he would do three things for his man. First, God would, in verse 2, make of Abram a great nation. Second, 
God said that he would bless Abram. And third, God would make Abram's name great. Okay, all this would be done so that he could be a blessing, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But, but note what God said that he would do for Abram. He would turn him into a great nation, meaning the nation of Israel. He would also bless him. And he would make Abram's name great. And God, of course, as we look back upon this promise, has done all three. He's done those things for Abram. But in thinking about this, I want you to recall just for a moment the citizens of Babel that we saw in a couple of studies ago. What did they want? They wanted to be great. They wanted to be a great people. They wanted to have a great name and be known as a great nation. They wanted the blessing of the heavens. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11, verse 4. But though that's what they sought, they didn't get it. They instead became a dispersed people, cursed by God and a blight on human history. The name that they craved, they did not receive. But now here comes Abraham out of nowhere. He's not presented as striving for a name. He's not trying to be known. He's not trying to be famous. He doesn't want to be widely esteemed. But God declares that he will make him into a blessing of a man whose name is great. You see, we often spend so much of our energy trying to build our own names, our own kingdoms, our own empires, only to watch them crumble. But Abraham shows us a different way of life. One where we obey and God makes us a valuable blessing for others. And therefore, people of great reputation, of a great name. You see, the significance that so many people crave is actually found in the counterintuitive path of submission to God. He then redeems our lives for his purposes and glory. Okay, but God had other blessings to pronounce upon Abram. He said in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, by the way, doesn't this sound like God's original plan? Remember Adam? Adam was supposed to, to live a life that led to the blessing of all the people who would extend from him. Everybody was supposed to be blessed by Adam's walk with God. Humanity was meant to know and enjoy their creator, and Adam's life was to beget more life. Unfortunately, his disobedience led to a curse. Abram, though, his obedience, it led to a blessing for all nations. Ultimately, this promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. It's only through Jesus that all the families of the earth have eventually been blessed. From Abraham's line came Jesus, and his death and resurrection blesses anyone who believes in him. Paul said it this way in Galatians 3, verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So in the mind of God, when he spoke this to Abram, he was speaking the gospel before the cross was even fully known. Okay, through the whole passage, 
God's plan is presented in the form of chain reactions. Obedience leads to a chain reaction of God's blessing. And I've been saying this, you know, I said it earlier that God, his blessing, it's like a flowing river. Obedience enables us to jump into his flow. And that's how Abraham's life is going to work. God gave him two commands, followed by three blessings or promises. Command number one was, go from your country to the land I'll show you. And if he did that, then God said, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. The second command was to live as a blessing to others in verse 3. And we're going to see different ways that Abraham stepped out to try to be a blessing to others. And if he did that, God said that he would bless those who bless Abram, curse those who dishonor Abram, and bless all the families of the earth through his life. Okay, this was really important for Abram to know. And we're going to see how he interpreted this in his own life and actions in the coming weeks. But this was also important for Israel to know about when they read this. You know, obedience, as I've been saying, leads to great blessing. And they, of course, at the time of reading the book of Genesis for the first time, were called out of Egypt. And there were times that obedience was costly and hard, and they needed to trust that their obedience was going to eventually lead to great blessing. And we need to know the same. You know, though we aren't called to move to a foreign land like Abram was and like Israel was, we are called to obey the Lord. And we should know obedience leads to blessing. For, for instance, when I read a, a passage like this one to you, what happens to you? Let me read it. First, Corinth, First Thessalonians 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What, what happens to you when you hear exhortations like that in Scripture? You know, some, when they read that, will cringe a little bit. You know, abstain from sexual immorality. You know, that sounds like a terrible, difficult, miserable kind of life. But others will understand that kind of command in a totally different way. They'll understand that it is actually a pathway to great blessing from God. They'll see it as a protective word from God. You know, he wants us to obey him, and when we do, great blessing follows. Okay, let's move on in the passage to discover whether Abraham obeyed God or not. It says in verse 4, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. All right, we'll stop right there. The central idea of those two verses that I just read is the obedience of Abram. Look at the way that it's described. He received the promise of God along with the command of God, and it says in verse 4 that he went as the Lord told him. So he's obe obedient to God. The text is forceful in describing a Abram's actions. It says he went and he departed from Haran and he set out to go to the land of Canaan in verse 5. Okay, he did not leave just because that's what nomadic people do, but he left in order to obey God. In other words, God spoke and Abram immediately headed out on this 500-mile 
one-month journey from Haran to Canaan. When, when this portrays him this way, it's showing him as acting like Noah, you know, doing everything that God commanded him. The Lord had told him to go out, so he went out. And all this was done as an act of obedience to God, and his example, of course, would have stood out to Israel and should stand out to us. The simple and straightforward word of God, especially when he tells us to separate from our old life, should be enough for us. We should obey it. Israel had to leave Egypt. We have to leave the life of sin, and obedience is key. I realize that many Christians struggle with their obedience to God, but too often excuses are made. And we say to ourselves, I can't possibly obey the Lord. Yes, you can. With the Spirit of Christ inside of you, you absolutely can live a life in the light in general obedience to the Lord. Will you be tempted? Will you struggle? Absolutely. But the general course of every Christian's life can be one of obedience. Okay, the passage also says that Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Okay, this is supposed to be seen as a little bit of a point, point of tension in the plot uh, because even though God promised Abram and Sarah descendants, they're 75 or he's 75 years old and she's not that much younger than he is. The idea is it's that they're getting up there in years and they still don't have any children. Okay, but, but 75 doesn't mean the same for Abram as it does for us. When you look at the lifespans of the patriarchs, uh, they're basically double what our lifespans are. So when we're moving through the book of Genesis, uh, when you see 100, that might read more like 50 in their time. Uh, so when we see that Abraham was 75, you might think of somebody who looked and felt and acted a little bit more like somebody in their late 30s or something like that. So just consider that as we go through the book. Now, this little portion that we just read tells us that there were people that they acquired um, in Haran. It says that, you know, Abram went with Sarai and Lot, his uh, nephew, but they took all their possessions they'd gathered and also all the people, verse 5, that they'd acquired in Haran when they set out to go. So the question is, who are these people that they had acquired? Uh, they're likely not slaves that they had acquired uh, because the word for the people is not a word that uh, in Hebrew would have been used to, de to uh, describe slaves. Uh, it doesn't refer to their children because they, of course, didn't have any children yet. Sarai's barren. This probably uh, is a group of proselytes that Abram had made. It seems that he wants people to know about God at this point in his life, as we'll see in a few moments. And so possibly Abram has already begun sharing his faith in God uh, or about God with other people. So Abram, his family, and his people, they left Haran and they headed to the land of Canaan. Let's keep going in the passage. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, at the end of verse 5, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, when, when we read that passage, not much really stands out to us. But there are some major themes 
that are embedded there. First of all, though God had promised the land to Abram, when he arrives in the land of Canaan, he finds it occupied. It says that at that time, the Canaanites were in the land in verse 6. Okay, this is supposed to be a little bit of a jarring um, uh, truth or development, uh, especially for the ancient Israelites who were also on their way to the land, uh, and it also was occupied by Canaanites. Just as it was for Abram, the land was occupied upon their arrival, but God still designates it for his people. And this theme is furthered when God tells Abram in verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Okay, so Abram and the Israelite readers, they know that the land was destined for them and not for Canaan. Okay, another thing that should be noted is the way the passage describes the Canaanites. Okay, re remember what happened after the flood. It was Noah's grandson, Canaan, the son of Ham, who was cursed when Ham looked at and broadcasted Noah's nakedness. And the abhorrent practices of Canaan's father, Ham, whatever they were, and we talked about that when we went through that passage in chapter 9 of Genesis, uh, whatever those practices were, they seem to have been passed down from Ham to Canaan to the Canaanite people from generation to generation. Here, Abram comes to the Oak of Morah, and there the Lord appears to him, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. What, is, what does all that mean? Well, it's possible, if not likely, that the Oak of Morah served as a Canaanite shrine where idolatry was practiced, and idolatrous teaching was given. The word Morah means teacher. So this may have been a place that Canaanite priests declared oracles and where abominable practices were passed off as worship by the Canaanite people. But Abram didn't engage with the Canaanite practices. Instead, he set up shop and he worshiped the Lord, the true God. He was becoming a model for everything the Canaanites should have been. Okay, many centuries before the Israelites drove the Canaanites out of the land, Abram served as a true teacher to the Canaanite people. His sacrifice said to them, there's one God, worship him alone. Okay, but even though God promised the land to Abram's offspring, it wasn't time yet for him to personally partake of that promise. Because the Canaanites already inhabited the land, and because Abram needed land for his flocks, Abram moved on. Let's read it in verse 8 and 9. It says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, all the, all the places that I just read to you and all the place names mentioned in this whole episode uh, they actually have a bearing on the future story for the people of Israel. Shechem will become prominent. Bethel will become a significant sacred site for Israel. Ai will become a place of failure. But all of them tie into the story later on. But this movement, movement concludes with Abram journeying all the way toward the Negev, or the Negev. 
Uh, it was a land that was suitable for grazing flocks and herds. Okay, but before we move on, we should notice something about Abram's worship. When, when he arrived there at the hill country on the east of Bethel, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, it says in verse 8. Okay, this is who Abram is. He's an altar builder. And of course, the first altar that we saw was built by Abel at the very beginning, offering a sacrifice from his flocks to God. Uh, it was an ancient form of expressing gratitude and devotion. Okay, it doesn't tell us that he offered sacrifices, but that's the implication or the common assumption. And the text says that Abram called upon the name of the Lord at that altar. It's an expression referring to the public proclamation of faith in the Lord. It speaks of prayer and praise throughout the whole Bible, to call upon the name of the Lord. In this context, though, it's actually probably more closely aligned with a preaching word rather than a praying word. Abram was preaching at that altar or with that altar, telling his world about the God that he worshiped. Okay, this is how we're meant to see Abram. He's a man who obeyed and worshiped God, even though the societies he found himself in did not even uh, respect or revere or know God. And his allegiance to God would bring blessing to the whole world. Through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay, the believer, it seems, we have a similar mission. We're called to believe, to obey, and worship our Lord, all with the aim of becoming a blessing to the world as we preach the gospel message. Like Abram, we're to demonstrate true worship in our confused cultures, trusting that God will take care of our futures. Okay, with that, let's move on to verse 10 of chapter 12. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Okay, all of us reading this realize right off the bat, this is a bad plan, okay? But this is what Abram did. This is meant to shock the reader. We just left an episode where Abram acted in faith. He believed in God's marvelous promise that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He trusted God's promise that God would give Abram a special land where his family could flourish. Now, there's a famine in the land, the very land of God, and Abram seems to lose his mind. Because of the severe nature of the famine, Abram decides to go to Egypt for a sojourn. Uh, because, you know, in Egypt, they were more immune to the effects of a famine because of the bounty that the Nile River provided. Okay, clearly, everything is on the line. And there are a bunch of questions attached to this for the Israelite readers and for us. I mean, God led Abram to this land, 
And now the questions are, can, can God provide for his people? Is God's promised land suitable for survival? Is Egypt better than the land of Canaan? But again, all this is shocking. This fearless man of faith, he succumbs to fear. He freaks out. So much so that he tells Sarai, his wife, who it says was a woman of beautiful appearance. He tells her to tell everyone in Egypt that she was his sister, not his wife. Now, some try to point out that this was a half-truth from Abram because they were related by blood. But I don't think his interest was in telling a partial truth. His interest was in saving his own skin, his own life. He wanted her to say that she was his sister. It says in verse 13 that it may go well with him because of her and that his life may be spared for her sake. Okay, how would Sarah saying that she was Abram's sister save Abram's life? He, he probably was thinking something like this. He was probably thinking that the Egyptians were a people that were capable of thuggish murder in order to steal a beautiful woman from her husband. But he also probably thought that they were the kind of people that would have negotiated for a beautiful woman's hand in marriage for, from whoever was responsible for her. And so by posing as Sarai's brother, Abraham might have thought that they would approach him and try to negotiate a deal for Sarai's hand in marriage. And likely his plan was to drive such a hard bargain that the Egyptians eventually said, well, forget it. She costs way too much. We can't acquire her. And Abram and Sarai would escape unscathed. Well, let's see what happens next in verse 14. It says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, Abram thought he had everything covered, you know, a foolproof plan. But there was one man that his scheme did not account for, and that's Pharaoh. If anybody else in all of Egypt wanted Sarai's hand in marriage, uh, Abram had the hope, at least, that he could hold a stiff negotiation and rebuff their advances. But Pharaoh was the one guy in Egypt that would not negotiate with anybody. He would simply take. Uh, so he treated Sarai's supposed brother well by blessing him with all these different animals and possessions and servants. But there was no negotiation. Pharaoh wanted Sarai and he took her for himself. Okay, this is meant to be really alarming to the people reading Genesis for the first time. You know, God promised Abram and Sarai descendants, but now she's the wife of Pharaoh. She's part of his harem. And Abram, the man of faith, seems to be bought off with, with riches, with stuff. Will his new possessions keep him from the one person that he actually needed, Sarai, in order to experience God's promises, God's blessings, 
What is going to happen? Let's read in verse 17 and following. It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because Sarai, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, here, God would not allow his promise to Abram to become corrupted. Before Pharaoh had a chance to know Sarai sexually, before she was prepared as a full member of Pharaoh's harem, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Soon, Pharaoh figured out the ruse and returned Sarai to Abram before he had a chance to consummate his marriage with Abram's wife. And the whole crisis is averted. Okay, what do we learn here? We learn that God fulfills his promises no matter what. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And he will get the job done. He's in control. He's sovereign. And when Abram is made powerless by Pharaoh, God demonstrates his power over Pharaoh. Nothing can stop God. Okay, now when Israel read this story, they would have noticed parallels in their own experience, don't you think? Uh, when they were in Egypt, their encounter with Egypt, why did they go there in the first place? Well, it was because there was a famine that drove them to Egypt for food. Uh, Abram went into Egypt for the same reason. Abram feared that he would die while Sarai would live as a captive wife. And the Israelites lived through a time when all the baby boys in Israel, or Hebrew baby boys, were targeted for death by the Egyptian government. Abram experienced God's deliverance through plagues and God brought, uh, that God brought onto Pharaoh and his house, something that every Israelite reader had just witnessed in the ten plagues that God brought during Moses' day. And when Abram departed Egypt, it was with great wealth. That was something the Israelites also experienced as Egyptian people did everything they could when the Israelites left to fund their sojourn. It's like they said to Israel, please leave and please leave permanently. Don't come back. So Abram's story stood as one of great anticipation for the Israelites. You know, God had plans for them also. He protected Abram. He protected them. He had a promised place for his people. Okay, before we move on in the story, we must consider the message. Multiple times, as we'll see in future studies of Genesis, Abram and his offspring will turn to dishonest means as a method of self preservation. This story is going to unfortunately repeat itself. Abram will commit this same sin of lying about Sarai in another later passage. Then his son Isaac is going to commit the same sin, the father committing the, the son committing the sins of the father. And in this episode, though telling a half truth might have appeased Abraham's troubled conscience, Lying in this way was not his best moment. 
And as Israel read the account of Genesis, they discover that all did not actually end well for Abram in this episode. You know, he left Egypt, a wealthy man, so it's, an, it's uh, tempting to think, oh man, that paid off, seems to have worked out for Abram. But he probably also acquired a slave girl named Hagar there in Egypt. And she, in later chapters, is going to become a threat to the promise that God gave Abram. In other words, everything was thrown into jeopardy because of Abram's fear-based decision-making. So Israel would learn that fear-based decision-making is not an ally to the child of God. They'd need bold faith when they went into the promised land, just as we need confidence in God to live life for him today. We cannot fear what might happen to us. Instead, we must not compromise at any price and simply obey him. Like little children, we have to trust our Father in heaven. Jesus said in Luke, 17, Luke 18, verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Shouldn't this show us, when Jesus says things like this, that manipulation, which is so unchildlike, you know, or, or, or I should say it this way, lacking innocence, because a child can, of course, learn to manipulate, but, a, but an innocent kind of life. Shouldn't we see that that's not the way forward in the blessings of God? Shouldn't this story encourage us to trust him more? All right, let's move on to chapter 13, verse 1. And for those of you who fast-forwarded to this section, thanks for sticking around and joining us here. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so here Abram <clears throat> leaves Egypt with Sarai and Lot, and he heads out into the region of the Negev again. Uh, they just escaped potential catastrophe there in Egypt, but soon this new problem starts to develop. Okay, but before we look at that, we should first see the picture that the passage paints. Uh, the emphasis is on Abram's return, going back to where he started. Uh, Abram is pictured in verse 1 as retracing his steps. He went up from Egypt in verse 1. He went back as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning in verse 3. He went back to the place where he had made an altar at the first in verse 4. And there, at the place that he'd started, he again called upon the name of the Lord in verse 4. You know what this is, right? This is a story of repentance. Abram knew that his previous actions were out of line. He trusted himself rather than God. He'd taken matters into his own hands and lost his character, almost lost his wife in the process of that sin. It seems like Abram sensed a need for reviving. So he needed to get back into the light. He needed to refresh and 
reinvigorate his relationship with God. So he went back to the place of the first altar he built for God. And there he called upon God. Okay, we don't worship at physical altars, of course. But sometimes we need to revisit the place of the beginning of our walk with God as a way to refresh our relationship with him. The reality is that he's God. He does not drift. But sometimes we drift. And when we realize that we've drifted, we need to get back into his presence. Jesus said something like this to the Ephesian church. After commending them for so many things, he said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, Jesus was ready for the Ephesian church to return to their first love. Their first love for and of him. And this passage in Genesis presents God as willing and ready to forgive Abram and receive him afresh. In fact, this episode is going to end with a major blessing pronounced upon Abram. The message is clear. When you drift from God, return to God. He will receive you, and it's the only path forward to blessing. Okay, but, th but though Abram's worship was restored, there was actually an issue. So let's read of it in verse 5 and following. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was, verse 7, strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Okay, this is the mo money, mo problems passage of the Old Testament. Both Abram and Lot are presented as prospering businessmen. Abram, verse 2, was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Lot, verse 5, had great flocks and herds. He also had tents, it says, something that Abraham isn't noted for. And it might actually be a hint about Lot's growing family, something that Abram, of course, didn't have because he had no children. Then Abram, verse 8, said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Okay, this is an amazing development in Genesis. Abram proposes that Lot choose where he would like to go. Abram will go in the opposite direction of Lot. If Lot goes to the right, Abram will go left. If Lot goes to the left, Abram will go right. Now, this might have shocked the original Israelite readers who read this for two reasons. First, Abram was the one that God made the promises about the land to. It seems like he could have exercised his rights at this point and chosen for himself the good land and required Lot to go in the opposite direction. But instead of asserting himself, Abram 
lowered himself like Jesus. He let Lot choose. This is meant to be seen as a solution to some of the problems that are attached to great wealth. When strife comes as the result of great possessions or when in a fight over resources, the child of God is free to choose the path of Abram and simply walk away. Let someone else choose and then take whatever is left. Instead of fighting for your rights all the time, you can trust God. Okay, but this level of generosity that Abram showed Lot, it requires faith. Generosity requires faith. It's a major way to show trust in the living God. By letting go of your resources, by giving, you're implicitly saying that you don't trust the wealth. And Abraham was saying he didn't trust the land, but that he trusted in God. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and following. He said, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely, is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That is a faith paragraph that I just read to you. The trust that says, as I give, as I'm generous, God will give back to me so that I can continue to be generous. That was the kind of spirit that Abraham displayed when he let Lot choose for himself. Okay, but back to this Genesis passage. There's a second thing that would have shocked the original Israelite readers. Abram, the recipient of God's promise that the land of Canaan is for him and his descendants, allows Lot to choose whatever land he wants. What, what if Lot chooses the promised land? This was even more meaningful for ancient Israel because they knew that two of their enemies, nations who tried to block them from the promised land, were the Moabites and the Ammonites. Moab and Ammon were sons of Lot through a drunken and incestuous relationship with his own daughters later on in the Genesis account. So now Abram allows the future father of the Ammonite and Moabite people who attacked Israel years later to decide wherever he wants to go. The whole thing, everything, God's promise and plan, it appears in jeopardy through Abraham's actions. But, but God's promises cannot fail. Abram didn't need to strive for what God had promised. He knew that God would fulfill his promises and complete his word. Nothing could stop God. Okay, but what would happen? Would God steer the next events? Would Abram lose out on these promises from God? Well, let's read further into verse 10 and following. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before, parentheses, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot makes his choice in that paragraph, and it's a choice that he makes on a purely human level. He just lifts up his eyes. He sees the Jordan Valley. He notices that it's well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That means that he knew that it would be a great place for his flocks, which would lead to his prosperity. Abram operated in faith when he let Lot choose, and Lot, Lot operated by sight when he exercised his choice. Lot's decision was, was based exclusively on what he saw. He lifted his eyes, and he kept creeping closer to danger. He moved his tent as far as Sodom, it says in verse 12, which was a city known for its wickedness. And foreshadowing a future event in Genesis, we learn here in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Okay, but there are other elements of, the, of foreshadowing in this passage. Lot chose a place in the direction of Zoar, it says in verse 13. This was going to actually be the place that Lot would eventually flee to from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That destruction is mentioned here in verse 10. And the passage says that Lot journeyed east in verse 11. So far in Genesis, every move away from God has been eastward. Adam and Eve were driven east out of the Garden of Eden. Cain went east after he killed Abel. The Tower of Babel is presented as occurring in the east from uh, this location. All of this is meant to help us see that Lot is making dangerous decisions. Choosing the valley based on sight, prioritizing money-making and prosperity, moving so near to Sodom. Each decision is meant to show us a compromised man. This is not how God's people are supposed to make decisions. And let me exhort you, don't join yourself with the world system like Lot did. Don't make decisions based on sight alone. Instead, turn to God like Abram and trust that he will take care of you. After Lot made his decision, look at what it says in verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. What would happen next? Well, let's read it in verse 14 and following. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, God's gift of the land of Canaan to Abram is presented as the opposite of Lot taking the plains of the Jordan. The Lord here in verse 14 and in verse 10 said to Abram, lift up your eyes. 
Well, Lot lifted up his eyes all by himself. Abram waited for God to give him the land. Well, Lot chose the land for himself. Abram waited to hear from God, but Lot merely followed his impulses or his instincts. Okay, our study today began with God's call upon Abram back in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. God said there, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But God said, go to the land I will show you. And Abram is still waiting now for so many of the elements of that promise to be fulfilled. He's waiting for children to be born. He's still waiting to receive a land from God. But here he receives God's promise afresh. God invites him to walk through the length and breadth of the land. Everywhere that he walks belongs to him. Though Lot might have tents, Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And this, this place that he was walking through, it would eventually be their homeland. And it was from this location that they would become a blessing to all the families of the earth, namely through the birth of Jesus. Clearly, Abram made the right choice when he let Lot choose. So it says in verse 18, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, the Oaks of Mamre here in verse 18 might already be a Canaanite holy site by this time. If so, it's especially significant that Abram comes along and builds an altar to the Lord there. The whole passage shows that he's faithful to God, even when people like Lot aren't. The faithful, they keep on worshiping God. And through this altar, Abram was preaching to the culture he lived in about his God. He wanted them to know him. And I pray during this season that we're in, that we like Abram would make decisions based not on the flesh like Lot, not on what we see like Lot, and not even like Abraham in choosing to go to Egypt in fear, but that we would make decisions that are based on faith trusting that the Lord will take care of us as his people.